Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the AEW Dynamite Review. I'm Adam Wilborn from What Culture, joined by the Dadly Boys of What Culture, Michael Hamblet and Michael Sidgwick, here to review everything that happened on last night's episode of AEW Dynamite Road Radio. But before we get into it, if you're a fan of this sort of thing, make sure you subscribe to What Culture Wrestling on either iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast from, for daily wrestling podcasts. Where we not only review AEW Dynamite, but also Raw, SmackDown, NXT, pay per views. We have interviews roundtable discussions and a roundup of the week complete with a bloody good quiz of course on WrestleCulture as I said though joined by Hamlet and Sidgwick to review AEW Dynamite Road Rager and my goodness me I know we've had them back before but still great every time to have fans back for AEW Dynamite Michael Sidgwick mostly I don't think I was (laughs) I don't think I was quite as high on this Dynamite as my timeline various comment sections have uh heralded it to be like this great great two hours of tv and i don't think it was quite great i think the crowd at their loudest were great but they weren't really consistently loud mm-hmm. i kind of found some of the in-ring lacking um it reminded me which is strange because it's an indoor arena that isn't one of these sweaty hovels of like the independent scene so i expect it to be like quite a modern place it, the in-ring and the way everyone like so many were sweating it felt like it was one of those deep august dailies place oh yeah um shows but some of the angles are red hot. Some of the developments were red hot in ways that I couldn't comprehend because I don't even like the guys at the um, centerpiece of them. Basically, what I'm driving at is it was a really good show. I don't think it was quite as good as a lot of people think. That's fine. Um, but at the very best of this show, you've got that proper inimitable AEW Dynamite energy. Uh, Michael Hamlet, we've uh, paid your bond. You're back out. What did you reckon to last night's show? The bits that you saw before you tried to jump uh, MJF, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I um, I was glad Sidgwick said this when we had a brief chat over the real desks this what? morning. What? Because, you know, like, we're a nation in celebration today and I didn't want to have to have a fight. And I completely agree with him. Um, Twitter is like your T-shirt, Will Bond, because they think it's all over, but I just thought some of it was. Some of it didn't really get over to the level that I thought it would um, in front of that crowd. And I try really hard like to not blame crowds generally. You know, when you just read bad crowd, it's like a crowd will respond as AEW proven over and over again to hot action. 
Like you can like you can get away from the old like Divas piss break match that the WWE used to install to save their main event. Yeah, there has to be undulating levels and some stuff's not going to be as over as other things. But I, I sort of expected a hotter show. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, maybe when we break it down batch, match by match, I'll be able to work out why that was. Because I too didn't get quite that feeling of electricity that we had with Double or Nothing or Night One of WrestleMania. And it, it was good. It was good, but I'm not sure that it quite hit like the like best ever dynamite like peak or anything nevertheless lots to talk about uh, first of all put some goddamn respect on qt marshall and give him a goddamn entrance uh, he didn't get an entrance uh, for the first match of the night the south beach strap match cody did of course uh came down uh, before the strap match even started marshall was trying a bit of housery uh got out of the ring so cody dived through the ropes and attacked him they uh they got the strap on Touch the four corners. Thank God. First thing I was looking for after going, oh, crowd, lovely layout, etc. was, oh, there's no lights. Oh, thank goodness. There's no traffic light system to tell me, oh, they've touched this corner, you know, Adam. Um, but yes, uh, so it's touch, touch four corners to win in this strap match. Uh, lot of whipping. I won't go through every time that they touched each corner, by the way, because that obviously happened quite a lot here. Uh, but Cody whips Marshall with the strap and then uh, Aaron Solo gets involved. It's no DQ, of course. Uh, but then Dustin Rhodes runs out and chases him into the stands. That allows Marshall to use the strap to hit Cody low and then whip him and choke him with it. Uh, Marshall gets uh, or takes it out to the floor and then gets pulled into the ring post by the strap by Cody and gets busted open. Uh, Cody touches three turnbuckles. And then the lights go out. Hmm. Foreshadowing, perhaps, or just how do you want it to look later like this? Oh, bollocks. Uh, turn it back on. Um, anyway, regardless, Marshall used that distraction to, to attack Cody, stop the count, etc. They go up to the top rope. Uh, Cody's choking Marshall uh, and goes for a top rope Frankenstein, but Marshall reverses, counters into a power bomb. Uh, Cody, though, stops Marshall from ba- benefiting from that to touch all four, four turnbuckles. Marshall hits a diamond cutter and again touches three, but uh, Cody stops him again and uh, gets whipped like a government mule to for, for, for his uh, attempt of uh, stopping Marshall. Cody fires up eventually, though. He hits the Cody cutter in the center of the ring uh, and looks like he's got the match won. Cody um, hits three of the corners. Marshall st- tries to stop him, so Cody just kicks him in the dick. Uh, Marshall then spits in Cody's face, hits, gets hit with three crossroads as a receipt for that and cody touches all four turnbuckles to win the match sage what did you make of the south beach strap match it was good enough i think good enough is how i would describe this the crowd weren't that hot for it i think it's just an inherent just apathy towards the stipulation Mm. they did some nice things with it like they modernized um some of the spots it didn't really feel too contrived um, it felt like an organic strap match with like some high spots in it, um, essentially. One of my key problems with it is I couldn't hear that many of the slabs. I don't know if it's... Look, I watched this show at 3.30 a.m. UK time, as I've said countless times, to just make sure that the earliest possible time my beautiful children wake up at the most annoying time, I prevent that from happening. So I watch it on quite a low volume, but I still couldn't really hear... No. Like the visceral thwacks of the strap, which obviously is such a huge um, key part of the match. So I felt like it was lacking in that regard. Um, but it was nice enough. And look, they needed to do two things here. They needed to blow off the feud. Yes, they did it nicely and resoundingly, strengthening Cody ahead of his next program, which we'll get to later. 
It was Paramount that Cody, having had a middling year, uneven's probably the better, more generous or accurate word because he's done some stuff that people just shrugged at and he's done some absolutely world-beating TV star stuff with Shaq. Mm. But it was paramount, given the fact that the uneven stuff has been very uneven, um, to just reposition him as this massively over baby face. And not only did he get the entrance pop, but he justified that entrance pop with this brilliant fire in the last two minutes. Like a proper great baby face performance in the last two minutes of a pretty good match. On the lights thing, almost certainly foreshadowing. It happened during this match involving Cody mm. and not another match. And I know like randomness doesn't strike anywhere on purpose by being random, but it was a very cute detail, I thought. It felt like a disturbance creeping into the to the atmosphere of the show rather than just the hokey lights out trick, which I'm a mark for. We're all marked for. Yeah. But they built towards it in a way that hopefully, hopefully is an omen of this new character, which we'll get into later, is a less overtly supernatural character and more just of a, a theatrical way of presenting the fact that he's a new disturbance in this promotion. I really appreciated the lights out thing after, like, obviously after the reveal later on, really appreciated it more than anything else in this match. I thought this was a little bit ponderous at points. It felt like, like two guys had a strap and therefore didn't need to think about where they were going next because they could fill that gap with like a whipping shot, for example, which is fine because it's the stipulation, but there was a little bit too much of that. Like I thought it was perhaps given a bit too long, um, but then these matches tend to get that run time at the start. And it's obviously because like Cody wanted the space, it's his show, it's his company. Like we say this about Chris Jericho, some guys are more positioned to be able to like gobble up these moments than others. Cody is of course one. And I actually think um, that maybe like this show was necessary for Cody because I agree with Sidgwick. He felt like the star again by the end. And obviously it being Cody was like wrapping up one piece of business to start in the next one on the very same <laughs> night and having this like, I'll take the surprise guy. That's fine. Um, that's probably going to elevate him back to that level because I personally thought the pop was quieter than I expected for Cody opening the show and maybe even quieter than Cody would have expected. Maybe that is the fans, you know, it's nice that the fans are connected enough to the product to be like, you haven't given us loads of reasons to worship you this year. So we're not going to give you that. Like You've got to earn that reaction every time. You know, you've got to keep earning it. Um, so I think this angle that he's moving into now, we'll get him that back. We'll, like That feels like a major match where this perhaps didn't. And, you know, in, in terms of just thinking of what's next for Cody, this might finally get him back on track when it's felt like he's been going off the rails. Like it was it was just, it was a slightly inauspicious start to the show, if I'm honest, as in terms of match quality that would continue throughout the night because it probably did fall a bit short of fairly measured expectations I had of it as a, as a strap match. It's not a great stipulation. No. It's really been one memorable strap match. And ironically, it took place on a night when, the lights went out and they had to do it again. And that was Steve Austin and Savio Vega. The lights went out and the rematch was better. So maybe, you know, that was a, a cute call back to that as well. Um, yeah, it was just fine. Like, it's it, glad it was glad it's done. Glad it's finished. I've, <laughs> I've no thirst for factory family stuff in front of crowds. And it appeared to me that a live audience didn't either. Uh, yeah, I, I've got to agree with both of you there, especially like, I woke up, understandably, in a rather giddy mood this morning. And yeah, the pops were was there, obviously, and great to have, you know, just I just appreciate it so much more uh, since it was taken away for so long, of course. But 
uh yeah underwhelming i think is the best way of putting it and then like you say the match starts and there's all the fun of whipping and i completely agree Sid. you're right i um, i didn't hear that they weren't as definitive and i know it's it was a very different setting but i was talking about yesterday re-watching the mjf lashing segment i know it's different to strap it's a belt blah 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 blah, blah. and it's all just like Shh, right we're gonna twat him for number four or whatever it may be but yeah it just didn't didn't have that it's not the snap that i'm no, just the just the the reverberations that I was expecting, let's just say. Um, and yeah, once it got going, I was like, oh, there's all, you know, fun little spots and the, you know, the power bottom and the, you know, the, the diamond cutter, et cetera, et cetera. And obviously the three crossroads. But at the end of the day, it was still like, it's still just a strap match. So I'm, I'm never going to go back and watch this again, basically. Anyway, let's move on uh, because we had a promo from Sean Spears talking about Simon Guevara. Look at you. Look at me. Effectively. That's why I twatted you with a chair last week. It was uh, Guevara's ego. Sammy. Uh, Sammy. Who? Uh, Sean said that uh, got, got, got him into trouble last week. And then he got twatted out of nowhere by a chair by Guevara who said this is far from over and then it was the turn of the AEW world champion flanked of course by that knobhead Don Callis uh, to come out uh, Tony Schiavone introduces them and Callis grabs them by and just goes alright piss off mate um, he uh, he tries to, to to sort of give Miami a bit of a, a lesson in, in history uh, but gets the you got fired chance and responds by saying real men get fired uh, goes through all the challenges that Kenny Omega's faced and beaten of course um, he's He's all they're all in the shadow of the god of pro wrestling, effectively. Um, but there's a problem now. There is a problem. They've beaten everybody. What about Hangman Page? Everybody they've beaten. There's we, we want Hangman Chance. Uh, Dark Order's music hits. Out comes Evil Uno, who's got a few questions for Kenny Omega. He wants to know why. Why are you ignoring the crowd? And why are you afraid of your friend? There's Cowboy Chance echoing around the arena. Uh, Kenny Omega oh, just knows how to tickle me sometimes, doesn't he? What's the capital of Thailand? What are you? Are you back in school, Kenny? It's Bangkok, baby. Low blows, uh, uh, Evil Uno, of course. Uh, Good Brothers, Nakazawa come out. They attack the Dark Order. And then Hangman uh, Page's music hits. He runs out. He fights off the Good Brothers. Uh, Omega is alone in the ring. And there's Page poised to hit the bookshot lariat. But he doesn't. They face off instead in the centre of the ring. Carl Anderson uh, distracts it, so it allows Kenny Omega to, to escape up the ramp. But, oh, the first step on a very exciting road, Michael Hamflet. Great. Capital G, great. Best thing on the show. Best um, reminder that crowds are back. Uh, the point for me where Don Callis was having to, like, sort of fend off those chants relating to his TNA angle about being sacked from there, was so thrilling, more so than the response that Cody got, because it was like, oh, this is a wrestler interacting with an audience that doesn't quite tie into what they're there to do. The crowds are back. Crowds are actually back. Wrestling is back. This is what it's all supposed to look and feel like. And in terms of look and feel, we've had a year plus of waiting to feel what we all felt as Hangman Page stood on the entrance at the end of the Revolution tag match, teasing the bookshot lariat, and we got it again. Like, we got that wonderful... Um, like moment that that feeling back, um, the deafening cowboy chant was so rewarding because AEW deserve this. They deserve every reaction. They deserve every feeling. The pop when Hangman Page came out to make the save finally, because again there was that like the, the brilliance of this is that 
you know, like they had to they had to think about when they wanted to deliver you the visual of Kenny Omega and Hangman Page back on screen again. So there was a nervousness and a tension that it wasn't going to be here. And it's like, oh, you have to tread really carefully there because if Hangman Page isn't coming out to save his friends, like that's going to endanger what you've built about this guy Page and about what the Dark Order have done for him. But he did. And it was there and it was awesome. And it was something that was finally realized. And like, maybe this was all, maybe this was going to happen slightly earlier. And it is, has in fact been timed out impeccably to happen in front of like AEW's first proper live non-Daily's Place audience. Wonderful, great. I was slightly critical last week of what felt like a rush job to, to get to this, but no, it's been timed out to this and I need to just trust this process like completely. I'm still not convinced that Hangman Page is Kenny Omega's next opponent. Mm. Still feels to me like they're going to put somebody in Hangman Page's way or Kenny's going to try and no-sell all of this and be like, anyway, I'm on a business with Christian Cade. Like, it's most obnoxious. I know I know what you all want. You all want me versus Alan Angels one more time or something like that. The big bait and switch, something like that. the next pay-per-view, I'll be facing Page. Diamond Dallas Page, that is. (laughs) Anything. Like... Yeah, Paige, like a great angle. Paige, I've been watching you all these months. And let me tell you, Ethan, when we go one-on-one, <laughs> like him now trying to have to, like him trying to build the obstacles to not face Hangman Page becomes like a delicious new wrinkle because we've had the face-off. They've given us that. And I thought it was that they were going to delay. So I, like, I, I was just electric. I'm getting goosebumps now because like watching it was this feeling of all the wrestling's back and this thing that they've put two years into is happening and it's happening really soon. This was wonderful. This is red hot life affirming highlight of the show. Absolutely in love with this. I tweeted this. The mega fans will forgive me. The true measure of how brilliant all of this is is that it's all peaking so goddamn wonderfully in the way that only AEW can peak its storylines. This Kenny Omega character is so fantastic, so fantastic. I don't want this run to end. I want this run to end as little as I want as much. Hangman Page to win that title. It's all picking perfectly. All the characters are in the right places. And again, here's the thing. They've got All Out coming up. They've got Arthur Ashe two weeks removed from that. And yet they dropped a hint that Page versus Omega is going to happen at Fight for the Fallen. I don't know what's going on in the best possible way. I'm completely behind the steps of what they're doing. I want to join them on this journey because I don't know where it's leading. All I know is there's going to be peak, 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 and it's already peaking for me right now. Like Kenny Omega's delivery was so fantastic. Not just Bangkok, baby, but (laughs) it was softly spoken, almost like naive way of putting the question across. What happens to be the capital of Thailand? (laughs) And I just completely got sucked in, even though I've obviously heard the joke before. Absolutely tremendous stuff. Um, and what I loved about the Hangman Page tease, it's just the absolute depth these guys put into their storytelling. I didn't even catch the fact that it mirrored Revolution because for me it mirrored something else, and they are all thinking of all of these things, incidentally. I didn't catch the Revolution thing, even though that's clearly what it was, but I was also reminded of the full gear match between Kenny Omega and Hangman Page, and for all the absolutely moronic complaints that this new generation of stars and Kenny Omega in the book's especially, they will spam moves. They will kick out of things for the sake of it, for hollow pops, betraying any kind of storytelling. It's rubbish. These guys are so next level with their storytelling. If you go back and watch Full Gear, 
an amazing match. That will just become even better as this storyline deepens after you watch the next match. There's a moment where Hangman Page is about to deliver the bookshot lariat. And Hangman and Kenny Omega, he doesn't even do his um, signature drop step. He just ducks. His head moves slightly centimetres below with blinding dramatic precision. The forearm, he ducks the bookshot and he doesn't take it and kick out of it for a cheap near fall. Hangman Page, when he's on that apron, knows not only does he have the one-winged angel, not only is he the elite guy who I never felt like I was because the young bucks never um, cornered me at the first all-out because I'm not him. I'm not him and it gnaws at him. He can't even execute his finish, much less kick out of the finish that no one has kicked out of other than Kota Ibushi. There are so many sublime storyline details in this goddamn feud. I will never not be convinced that it's the best thing in pro wrestling I've ever seen. And this was an absolutely red hot, live in front of a crowd, crystallization of how wonderful it is. One of the, the probably my favorite segment of TV all year, this. To, to think there were some people who suggested that maybe they botched Hangman Page and he wasn't ready to, to be in and around the world title picture. I guess they're feeling pretty stupid right about now, but they're, you know, they're good professionals. They'll acknowledge that. They? We'll speak about next or whatever. Uh, right, okay. Let's move on uh, to the interview with Darby Allen and Ethan Page. A sit down with Jim Ross. Uh, Darby Allen said that Page was basically pissed off at him because of what he'd accomplished in short, such a short time. That Ethan Page had been in the industry for, I think he said, 11, 12 years, something like that. And, you know, Darby Allen's done amazing things in a year or had done amazing things in a year or two in the industry. Uh, he said Page was complacent. He's a big fish in, in a little pond uh, and he's annoyed that he'd made it to AW before. Ethan Page, and that's really what angered Page. Uh, but he said, Page, in response, that he plucked Darby Allen from obscurity and he wouldn't have been able to level up so quickly if he hadn't worked with someone like him who had these years of experience. Um, yeah, he brought Darby Allen in, he brought him up in professional wrestling, and next week in the coffin match, he's going to take Darby Allen out. And JR said, I don't want to have a good feeling about this situation. And that was the end of that. Anything you want to say here, Sige? Uh, a couple of things. Um, one, I wish they would just outright say Evolve. The name of the promotion, mm. Evolve, in which all of this backstory unfolded. It's so uncharacteristic of AEW to not sell the reality of the situation. Um, I'm not one of these idiot dickheads who will say, casual fans are going to get confused by this because you can <laughs> obviously, you don't even have to infer from the explicit dialogue that they have had a feud elsewhere. And this is a continuation of it. And the fact that it's happened elsewhere, and Ethan Page can never let go of it. Just conveys how deep rooted the hatred is between these two men. I wish they'll just come out and say evolve. Mm. I don't need. I know what happened there, and I don't think people need to know the name of the promotion. But it just no one's going to go. All right, I'll check that out. Oh Christ, evolve! <laughs> this is better than bloody AEW. No one's going to think that. Like, just don't do the thing you criticize other promotions for doing. That was a little bit, um, yeah, I just don't, I didn't like that element of it. But I liked virtually everything else. And I liked it in a way that feels like a tacit burial, faint praise, head ruffling. It did what it needed to do, but it did. It did. It made explicit the history that little bit more. And Jim Ross, who should do more of this and less of what he does for two hours every single Wednesday, was very good at putting across the idea of, this is going to be a very frightening match. Yeah, I thought this was 
super effective in that regard. I like I honestly think now if they wanted to, and they might, Darby Allen, that this could be the main event um next week. This felt like Jim Ross elevated this for me. Mm. Um they're they're smaller, younger guys that I'm the same as Sidgwick. I think the casual fan narrative is absurd, but it's um bad faith criticism, I guess, of guys like Darby Allen and Ethan Page to not somehow be on the level. And this interview put their rivalry on that top level, made this match, coffee matches are inherently silly, but like made this match feel very, very serious and quite scary, you know? This took it away from the magic tricks of The Undertaker and Bray Wyatt and into something that's going to be cruel and horrible because you're stuffing your opponent into a coffin. It's really unpleasant. And I think it was a worthy reminder of that and using this history. Like, I like that idea that, because you're right, I think AEW should treat this whole thing differently. Like, the whole thing about the Forbidden Door and the relationship with Impact is this idea that people aren't stupid and that wrestling is everywhere and you can be into everything. And ideally, and AEW have done this brilliantly, ideally come to us on a Wednesday night is the key destination for all wrestling, but know that other stuff is out there and it like comes across that they're not threatened by it, which is a cool flex in and of itself. So yeah, mention Evolve. You know, now fans can just as easily, like they can go to bing.com and type in the word Google. And then when you get to Google, you can search uh, Darby Allen and Ethan Page and find everything they've ever done together without even knowing the name of Evolve. But say so all the same, because I think it's quite nice world building from AEW's point of view. Um, I, this felt big time and mm. more so to credit Jim Ross, this feels like as a singles match, more big time than it did last week in a segment that featured Sting. So I think this was like this was a good choice of where to like place the Jim Ross sit down. They can't do it too much as well. They've done very well to measure yeah. this Jim Ross sit down because it will not feel special if you do it all of the time. We got a trios match, not a six man, a trios match next. Foreshadowing, perhaps it was the inner circle versus the pinnacle. Uh, that being Santana, Santana Ortiz, and Jake Hager uh, versus Wardlow and FTR with Tully Blanchard and Conan in their corners, respectively. Just started by fighting, as you would expect from uh, the tag teams in this match. Santana and uh, Dax Hall would just start battering each other to uh, kick the match off. Later on, uh, Cash Wheeler catches a, a leapfrog by Ortiz, power slams him, and then Wardlow comes in for a gut wrench powerbomb for a two count. In comes Harwood, uh, but Ortiz catches him with a powerbomb and tags in Hager, who hits the Hager bomb and well, just batters the pinnacle as we went into the uh, into the adverts, into the commercial break. Later on, uh, Ortiz counters a vertical suplex with one of his own, tags in Hager, who just yeah, runs wild again. Wheeler counters the Hager bomb, but Hager just gets an ankle lock on him instead. Harwood comes in to break it up, does, but then eats a big boot. Hager offers Wardlow out. He comes in, the big lads just trade punches at the centre of the ring. Hager gets out one of the suplexes, uh, goes to the ankle lock, but FTR enter the ring, distract uh, after a distraction, from Tully Blanchard, they hit the big rig, and out of nowhere, uh, they get the victory. Wardlow pins him to get the victory. Uh, Post match, Conan attacks Wardlow, but Tully chop blocks him from behind. And yeah, the uh, the pinnacle stand tall, Michael Sidgwick. Yes, it's a good idea to do that as well. I think a lot of people have complained, justifiably so, that the pinnacle haven't been presented in the most formidable light. Um, this is getting better in that regard. The booking was better than the match, I felt. Again, like, I don't know what it was about the ring in-ring, but up until the last five minutes of the main event, I just thought it was below the usual dynamite standard when, realistically, the backdrop you're wrestling in front of should have elevated it. So there's a weird dissonance there that just 
allowed me to not get properly into the show on the level of other people. In a slight concern, I think the FTR versus Santana and Ortiz teasers and exchanges were good enough, but realistically, I thought Jake Hager stole this match. Mm. Like, legitimately, he's so good in a tag team context. It's remarkable. He was doing great, sorely underrated tag team stuff alongside Chris Jericho last year. Um, he works as this fired-up baby face. He was a smash-mouth ass-kicker, mm. and he looked really motivated. Um, he looked really intimidating and hard. Um, rock hard and yeah I thought he was the star of this match which otherwise was sufficiently good commercial for the tag but if anything I'm correct yet again because I said on the preview it's probably a good idea to do this match to feel out the chemistry get any kinks out of the way before you elevate these expectations and don't get to work with your opponent so they can probably build on this which sounds a bit dry and boring. And, you know, I think it was dry and boring. But I was just expecting a bit more. I, I thought this was a bit drab, this match. Um, completely agree with the Hager thing. There were few wrestlers on this show that did as well in front of that live crowd as Jake Hager, um, which was odd. I, I wouldn't have expected that. Um, obviously, the match was agented for those moments, but he seemed more comfortable than a lot of wrestlers on this show, remembering that there were, like, asses in seats again. Very strange. Um I, I, I thought this was a bit boring, and I can only say that that's perhaps a consequence of the, the feud being booked backwards. But so much physicality between these two stables that beyond the um, Santana and Ortiz FTR match, and uh, to a lesser extent, the, um, the eventual MJF Chris Jericho payoff, uh, I, I don't think there's a lot left, like a lot of juice left in the fruit in terms of seeing these people battle each other anymore. It's just been a lot. And I think it's really hard to get something exciting out of a TV match. Um, and I think the same, I know we didn't like really touch on it. I think the same about Sammy Guevara and Sean Spears as well. Um, the segment was fine other than like the continuing like normalization of like chair shots, I guess. <laughs> I'm not mega sold on Sammy Guevara and Sean Spears in a singles match. If anything, it feels like Sammy's been relegated after the MJF match last week, which is fine. He lost like, in kayfabe terms, it makes sense that you kind of have to go down the pecking order a bit because you were defeated. But I'm not thrilled by the prospect of that match because I feel I've just I've seen them all fight. It's it's physical like physicality wise, it's sort of done and dusted beyond the tag match, which which like needs to bang. Like the, the tag mm. match needs to be just a total thriller and in front of an audience and in the way that FTR and now Proud and Powerful have been established as babyface in terms of dynamics, I think it will. I think it'll be spot on. Um but every other version of it, like this and like the other singles matches, feels a bit done. Mm. Like we're, I'm just done with the majority of these people pairing off against one another, and that's like that's a consequence of hitting the big matches first. Before we get to the Chris Jericho and MJF, not not parlay, not tete tete, what they calling it this week, face to face standoff. Uh, we got a promo from Carl Anderson talking about John Moxley and how much of a problem he's been for the Good Brothers and his time in New Japan. And he challenged Moxley to an IWGP United States Championship match next week, night one of Fighter Fest. Looking forward to that one, Michael Hamlet. Yeah, this is amazing. This is absolutely brilliant. John Moxley's been gone, um, and Carl Anderson versus John Moxley is a perfectly fine match. You know, we I'm, I'm sure we had Carl Anderson versus Dean Ambrose at some point or another. Um, but this is the difference. This this is the difference between AEW and WWE. There's, there's countless differences, but like this was one for me. You run a two and a half minute video package, less probably, mm-hmm. where Carl Anderson's prestige as a beloved ex-New Japan singles wrestler, because he's abs- he doesn't really work like that anymore, but 
this video package and Carl Anderson's intensity was there to remind you that he was a somebody once upon a time in this field. Um, he wants that title because he wants to take it back to the place where he wants to remind people it's Carl Anderson again. They've magic like out of thin air, effectively. I know that like Moxley was feeding with the like the super elite and stuff, but virtually out of thin air, they've created a brilliant reason for this match to exist. A perfect heel and babyface divide, and the sense that like Anderson's going to put his working boots on for the night, so you can get excited about it too. Love this. Yeah, I loved it too. The only thing I didn't like about it was Jim Ross. Um, again, he's so good in the sit-down context. He should be utilised there far more often than he is at the booth. John Moxley is your one of your top stars, just a beloved human being and pro wrestler, former AEW champion. When he is away for a while, and this is his first match back, you should go breaking news. You should do the thing that they do often for things that aren't as big as this. <laughs> they should go breaking news, huge news, guys. The return of John Moxley, Barber. Max is back. Have a look at this package. He just he literally just said, "Oh, Moxley's back." Uh, have a look at this. And it's like, no, like make it massive, Joe. And again, it's people talk a lot about how he seems disinterested, and it's just not AEW what they do generally. It's not his thing. If Austin has a five week absence or whatever, or however long it's been, and he's coming back, he tear his cock off. <laughs> he tear his cock off more than he does on Twitter.com. And yeah, he didn't do enough. I mean, it didn't matter, and it won't matter, because this match, which was built towards incredibly for all of the reasons that Hamlet's outlined, will get red hot in that arena. Red hot. People are going to goddamn receive John Moxley as a hero. The match is going to totally bang. Carl Anderson has probably spent the last five years just casually waiting for something like this. <laughs> just dogging it, waiting for a single. Dogging it, waiting for this. So it's going to be class. Um, but yeah... Jim Rossman, get in the game. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. 
Right, let's move on to the MJF Chris Jericho face-to-face standoff. Uh, MJF makes his entrance and gets the reception you anticipate he's going to get. Uh, Chris Jericho comes out, everyone sings Judas, well, almost everyone, uh, because a fan jumped up on the ramp. What a knobhead. And tries to, I don't know, get in the ring. I don't think he was trying to attack anyone specifically, but regardless, don't do it. It's really easy to be a wrestling fan. It's just anyway. Uh, so he, he jumps up as, as, as they're trying to, you know, transition into the talking part, uh, gets taken down by security and uh, a few, few swings from Chris Jericho, uh, MJF, they both recovered incredibly well, I would say. You know, credit to both of them for just just going. Anyway, enough of all that. MJF, you know, baits the crowd, slags them all off, dares there's someone, anyone else to try it. Um, but uh, and then he turns his attention, of course, to Chris Jericho. He says he's here, groveling for one more match. It's kind of sad, Chris, uh, but it's understandable because everyone wants a piece of the king of AEW. Uh, and then Chris Jericho responds by saying, first of all, you should have let that fat bastard come into the ring and beat MJF's ass." Um, and obviously we're here for MGF stipulations and Jericho says he'll accept any stipulation MGF put in front of him to get him in the ring again, including having sex with his mother again. Mama MJF is a saint. You take that back, Chris. Anyway, uh, MJF responds by saying, look, you're not going to rat on me. Uh, that's what the people want. And I don't care what they want effectively. I used to look up to Chris Jericho, MGF said, following every step of his career, including that feud with, with John Moxley, he made Moxley wrestle every single person in the inner circle. And MJF, like he always does, is going to take something like that, take that blueprint and just, you know, make it a bit better. He references Greek mythology and the labours of Hercules and says Chris Jericho is going to have five labours. The first four are going to be opponents that MJF picks uh, with unique stipulations, he said. Jericho is going to have to beat them back to back to back to back to back, etc. Uh, and the fifth is going to be MJF. Uh, and when he beats Jericho a third time, maybe he'll finally learn that MJF is better than him and he knows it. Jericho, no hesitation, accepts he is the god of battle, the god of thunder, the god of war in AEW. He's going to beat MJF, ruin his life. That ain't no mythology, he said, concluding and signing the agreement. But MJF stops him before he leaves and says, you might have signed that contract, but where I'm from, a deal is not done until both parties shake hands. Demands that Jericho shakes his hand, otherwise the deal's basically off. And Jericho does shake his hand. And the, I think every wrestling fan has, has done this with their mate before. The old shake hands one of you goes to leave, the other one doesn't let his hand go, and he turns around into something. In this case, it was a KOing Judas effect. Sage, what do you think of the Herculean stipulations that Chris Jericho was given by MJF? Uh, before we get into that, let's um, revisit some arcane old office patter. You mentioned how every wrestling fan's done that thing. I'm telling you, I once got a hamphlet when we were passing by in the old office with the outstretched hand. And he's about to shake and I went, hey, around <laughs> the back of my head. And he just looked at his foot, you're an absolute toss. And I went, I know. I am. I absolutely am. I completely just won. He won us in that moment. <laughs> <laughs> Stupid. And then two years later on Twitter, you got your revenge. <laughs> oh, God, that was horrible to watch. I was like, stop fighting everybody. If you want to know what we're talking about here, at Michael Hampler, at M. Sidgwick on Twitter. Here's the thing, right? This was top draw stuff between two pros. The recovery 
like the angles and the interviews and the promos were better than the matches on the show. And I rank this yeah. like alongside, it was like three major talking point match promotion angles that were the highlights of this show. This is one of them. The, re- the recovery was absolutely tremendous. Just two unflattable guys who were delighted at the presumed idea that some dickhead got worked by MGF. They were delighted by it. They were completely collected. They loved the fact that they could banter him off as he was getting beaten out of uh, the place by security. Tremendous stuff. Um, what I loved about Jericho's line is that how is that daft old bastard pop me with a sex with your mother? And I kind of worked it out. Usually in the juvenile way that people do it, and I'm not saying this is sophisticated, highbrow comedy, <laughs> but usually it's like, hey, mom's feeling a shagger. Like some 15-year-old with like... <laughs> it's like saying this because that's what you do when you're 15 but it's the fact that he put it over as something like horrible was just a nice subversion. <laughs> it's a nice subversion and the fact that he's wanting to do something horrible again just put him over as this horrible old bastard that he is and but everyone loves Chris Jericho and yeah. honestly I do as well when he's in this kind of form I genuinely <laughs> do um, so all of that was great Hamford got a bang on by the way yesterday on the preview um, just to remind people um, that on the preview yesterday, Hamlet was suggesting that he could do something like this, face an opponent of his choosing, but instead of like putting the brick house of Wardlow in front of him for whatever reason, well, for the reason he's probably going to kick his ass, he's going to torment him and put Sammy Guevara, that was Hamlet's pitch, so that was good. Because conspicuously no opponent was revealed, nor any stipulations were revealed. So the built intrigue on top of intrigue here by not disclosing these stipulations, by letting people think of what they're going to be. So, yeah, all of this is great. Deepens my anticipation of the match. And MGF's bump, vacant, open die bump um, from the handshake was tremendous. And it's okay just this once for the heel to eat from the baby face when you take a bump as, uh, as funny as that. I, it was a funny bump. I, like, I think all along people have been making the wrong comparison with Cody and Double J because this is Stone Cold Jeff Jericho. Not only is he the hardest and the funniest, but like Jim Ross loves him and he gets to win every segment regardless. I, like, I didn't like that, um, especially because he's knocking out with spinning back elbow before Andrade's debut, like one segment before. Mm. That's less than ideal. I um, this move. I know, I know. I, like, I didn't like that ending, personally. Um, I wanted just once, like, MJF not to be Chris Jericho's bitch. Like, it, it, this was the one for me where he didn't need to be it. Um, the matches, I don't mind it, like, what I like about this is the, if it's not, say, Guevara, which I suggested, or members of the Pinnacle, for example, I think they are weaving in something interesting with, like, who on earth would be MJF's ally for something like this? Like, who's he going to get on board for these matches if it's not the Pinnacle or if it's not something cynical like making Jericho fight his mates? Like, what heels are going to be in league with MJF and why? Like, the potential for splinter programs there are great. Like, what if somebody... Uh, Ethan Page is in a storyline, but like a Scorpio Sky just sees like, I fought you once before, Chris Jericho, mm. for the title. I got that first pin on you and like, I got nowhere with it. So like, he's got his own personal motivation for why he wants to be one of MJF's chosen few, for example. I think that's really interesting because it's the stuff that you can do longer term with the people that fight Chris Jericho. Jericho's like to beat them. I don't know how good the matches are going to be. I kind of wish it was like versus the elite because I think there's no guarantee of quality. Like, it, it didn't sell me on several matches that are potentially going to bang, whereas, like, Cody versus Wardlow in a cage was destined to be brilliant, you know? So it's 
I'm interested, but like, I, I don't know. I, th- like, I think it's all right, but it's maybe not at the level that I was perhaps hoping for. But the segment played out really well because of the live crowd. I don't know that this would have like felt as hot in Daly's place, but like seeing two like vocal standouts be able to spar in front of an audience again was like a lot of fun. Like that, that was another another segment where it was just, oh, yes, crowd's brilliant. This is what wrestling's supposed to look like. It just wasn't maybe quite as high on the stipulations. It's unfair of me, perhaps, because we don't yet know the wrestlers. Mm. Like each one of these matches could be brilliant. Um, and I, like I say, I like to see how it plays out. I just, I'll wait and maybe judge them as they happen rather than in advance. I liked it. I liked it because it opened up so many possibilities, not just with people he faces, but with match types as well. And I like the fact he could, and actually, I like the fact uh, um, that he also gives us a potential podcast for the weekend, speculating. <laughs> on uh, but also, I like the idea of him, you know, putting in varied opponents, like you say, a uh, Scorpio Sky and a Wardlow and, and whoever else may be, and getting to the fourth one and going, right, none of this has worked. Nick Gage, yeah, that'll do it. Um, so, so we'll have to wait and see what happens there. Anyway, we have to go backstage because there is about to be a murder uh, because Britt Baker is there with uh, Reba Rebel. Um, cutting a promo about, about what happened uh, or what happened post-match uh, last week in that tag featuring Nyla Rose and, and Vicky Guerrero, of course. Uh, she said the only positive that came out of that match was a, another win for Baker, but an innocent person was hurt. She talked about ratings, talked about Vicky Guerrero, you know, bringing in Andrade and then, you know, Owen, uh, Tony Khan, Owen her one. Uh, and I'm just going to read this quote verbatim because we had it on the news this morning. Reba's knee exploded in a clearly calculated attack, she said, and I almost died in a two-on-one ambush being powerbombed through a table. But hey, you have Andrade El Idolo, so enjoy your blood money. Maybe next week, AEW Dynamite can run in Saudi Arabia. She said uh, Nyla Rose is never getting her title back. And uh, she's not just sending Rose to the back of the line. She's sending her back to obscurity. She talks about Dallas being known as the Big D. Well, after their match, it's going to be known as the Big D. M D shots fired, Michael Hamplet. Yeah, like it was good. This it really was. It was really good. Um, but it, it's interesting. I think, like, I, the, I think there's quite a lot to analyze here beyond this awesome, like, this awesome shot. Uh, I, I was going to say a money line, it, a blood money line. Um, it's it reminded me a little bit of sloppy shop because I have to be really careful what shots you're going to fire because one of these, like, I don't think Tony Khan will ever feel the need to take Saudi Arabian money to run a show, but they could do something like ethically below the line one day and then it's like uh, you know that you're off that high horse now so well, like Kenny Omega and John Moxley have agreed I think to do a show in Qatar right you know so like so straight I didn't even know that this was just like my speculation of five years down the line so you really have to be careful with those shots you take but they're fun in the moment they're really good and Britt Baker delivered it like a star um I, something's happening here because I'm not so sure Sidgwick's got a better memory for this stuff for me with AW if they've ever outwardly kind of made apparent the problems with the women's division. And this sort of tacitly did that. Like Britt Baker was making a point about Tony Khan's infatuation with the likes of Andrade. It wasn't just a literal mention of Andrade. It was like, oh, like a big star's coming in. So he's more important. This is a bigger deal, blah, blah, blah. Um, Was this sort of response stuff? Does Britt Baker, in an effort to be a different kind of women's champion in a different type of women's division, want to bridge those two things and make it canon the criticisms and the problems and the misogynist biases of pro wrestling, perhaps. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I just thought it was interesting that, like, rarely does AEW, and we've talked about why this is before, rarely do AEW wrestlers talk about the 
internal admin problems of the company because then you skirt close to being a WWE babyface. That's come out like the system's all wrong, you know. Um, so I thought it was quite interesting how they handled that. It could come to nothing. It could just be for the sake of getting this line in because it was a huge talking point and it gave Baker a bit of agency that I think so far her title reign has badly, badly lacked. She felt like a big deal on a night with like no other, like the, the women's, the lack of a women's singles match was drawing some criticism last week. So maybe that promo cut that off at the pass a little bit as well. Um, yeah, like the line's the talking point, but I think there's like more to this. Um, yeah, the line was great. I can't deny that the line was absolutely spectacular, but as you know, there's no ethical consumption under capitalism, shall we say. Um, I've divided on this because it was an incredible, confident, vintage, if you like. God damn it, I hate that piece of shit. Mm-hmm. It's completely like, ruined the vernacular, professional wrestling. This is a classic, I was going to do the Portridge voice instead, a classic Britt Baker promo, and yet... So I meant I liked her last week, and now I don't mm. in the best way. But it's still a bit. It's get this Nyla Rose thing. It's been a total error to promote. It has not answered remotely the question of does Britt Baker have to turn face because instead she's going like sideshow Bob with the coming or going deal. I still really like the performer. I'm just not invested in the storyline. This promo didn't sell me on it any further. But Yuka Sakazaki is back next week. <laughs> Remind everyone that she's great. And in the post-match promo, Val Revenge. So that's going to be much better. And obviously we wish uh, Rebel Reba uh, well in her recovery. Horrible injury that last week. Uh, let's get to Andrade El Idolo's AEW in-ring debut. He faced Matt Seidel next. He wrestled in white trousers. Look, my uncle at a wedding. Uh, brave choice. But he wrestled in white trousers, which, of course, he made look spectacular. Because he's an absolute piece. Two absolute pieces on this show. Come to Ricky Starks and Duke Course. Um, Early on, uh, Seidel tries to roll him up, gets hit with a twisting suplex instead. Then they fight on the top rope and uh, Seidel gets knocked down. Andrade goes for a top rope moonsault. Seidel rolls out of the way, but Andrade lands on his feet and uh, springs into another moonsault straight onto him. Seidel does fight back. He gets some good offense in. Uh, He avoided a kick in the corner, or knee in the corner, I should say. Hit a spinning heel kick, uh, question mark kick as well in there on, uh, on Seidel. And rolled, uh, sorry, from side out and rolled Andrade up for two. Later on, Andrade fights back, uh, hits side out with a lariat, goes up top. Side out meets him up there. Uh, goes Andrade after fighting him, goes for the uh, uh, Alberto Del Rio stomp, and side out moves out of the way because, yeah, that's what, you, that's what you need to do. Stop holding yourself in position. It's a dumb, dumb move, dumb finisher. Uh, so side out fights back uh, and hits a meteora for a two count, but Andrade. Gets in with running knees in the corner and hits that hammerlock DDT, I think they're calling it, El Idolo now for the win post-match. Uh, he t- ties upside down and tortures him. Doesn't need to do that, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Sid, you had an interesting take on this on social media, so I'm just going to give you the floor right now, mate. I didn't like this really at all. Um, Andrade is wrestling like a body guy because he kind of has become one. It's odd. I don't think it sort of suits what is absolutely electrifying at and that is these these explosive strikes where you can literally can't comprehend that he hasn't knocked someone's head off with that spinning back elbow I can understand why he's not going to do an AEW the reason why is totally understandable it doesn't still not suck but regardless even if you take that away from his arsenal he's still Andrade I think he works like a body guy now because he is a body guy um, he looked gassed Sweat dripping out of him. 
that he was very laboured in his movements. This didn't at all draw me into the kind of potential that this dynamic had of this like really exciting, all-action, counter-driven banger. This wasn't a banger. It wasn't uh, a definitive, Jesus Christ, look at this dude squash. It was, um, to use a Geordie expression, it was neither Nount nor Summit. Mm. Like, it was, it just didn't really fit or sort of hit any criteria of what I was trying to do, and that is get Andrade over as either this dominant megastar or this super worker. Um, I'm going to talk around this point. Um, Andrade and Miro have gone through body transformations upon leaving WWE. Miro entered a similar performance to Andrade early in his AEW run, where he looked, maybe he was just, uh, hadn't wrestled for a while, and he looked a little bit out of puff and he was sweating all over. Maybe it was the Jacksonville heat. I got those exact same vibes from Andrade. Maybe he just needs to get used to wrestling again. Mm. Yeah, maybe that's what it is. Like, Sorry, I'm just I'm just still reveling the, the phrase out of puff. I haven't heard that in years. Hamlet, <laughs> <laughs> your thoughts. Same. Absolutely the same, man. Um it was like like a ricochet raw match where they kind of force him into grabbing a hold instead. I like, I did not feel like this was, it didn't feel like an AEW match. There was a distinct lack of um, expression. Sidgwick uses that word because they're like, there's a freedom of expression of performers in every aspect of being pro wrestlers in AEW. And that was like badly lacking. I felt like they were being told to go and have whatever it was like seven or eight minutes of a, standard, give him a high spot, slow him down, house your formula, bring him back up for the finish type thing. I, I couldn't believe what I was watching. Couldn't believe what I was watching. Like, I know we said, I know I said yesterday on the podcast, like wear a mask and stick a needle in your arm, but I was on about getting a vaccination. Like, I don't need anything else from any talent, shall we say, that undermines their ability. I, I was really, really disappointed with this. I thought the look was all wrong. Like, I want to see like Andrade in little Tommaso Champa tights, because I bet he's got great legs too. I don't want to see him in half a suit, even if it's some sort of reference, which I believe it to be. I'm not going to check what that is. Um, but I think I think it was possibly as in reference some sort of comic book character or a Marvel thing. Like, tell me on Twitter if you want, but I'm not interested, so you probably won't get the like. I, it just, it, none of this connected. And I was like so depressed about it after the fact, because this was supposed to be, they'll get there. They'll get there with Andrade. Like, they will get there. It's still good. It's still good. The pig is still in the air. Um, they, this was just supposed to be the make good for, like, four pretty lousy weeks. And I think that was what depressed me the most, is that it wasn't... It was, like, quite a long way from that. And I wanted to come out with this episode thinking that Andrade could be the Kenny Omega mystery opponent, for example. And, well, like, well, I wouldn't even make him the Miro mystery opponent at present. It just... He, I, he must know it. He's amazing. Andrade is awesome. He must know when things don't quite hit. And I just like everybody in the audience did. It was an awkward thing that nobody wanted to quite acknowledge that, like, this is not as great as we thought it was going to be, is it? Like, you just got to think, you just got to have faith that they'll get there. Yeah, another underwhelming segment on this show, but let's just hope it's just down to, to, to ring rust. Uh, it was followed by a, uh, a promo off between uh, Matt Hardy and Christian. Christian saying he always got the better of Hardy throughout the years, and Hardy being angry about Christian, betraying him a double or nothing, and saying, Bro, you're obsessed with me, mate. You follow me everywhere we go. Um, Christian concluded by saying, get on my level, get the hell out of my way. They're going to have a match at Fighter Fest night one. 
and I'll be glad when this is all over, Hamlet. Yeah, um, more than done with this. You know, like <laughs> this video package was good, but when you watch it, you're thinking this video package is good enough that I probably didn't need four beatdown segments over the last four weeks of television. <laughs> <laughs> you could have had, you could have just had this because the story was already there without it needing to be told. The story was there when the two of them came in into each other's orbit in the Battle Royal. Oh, it's Matt Hardy and Christian in the same company again. They're probably going to have, this is an inevitable match. And then you had this video package. They've sunk a lot of TV time into this and it feels like sunk costs at this point. It was like, like a waste of resources, but the match is going to be happening and then it's going to be finished. This time next week, it'll all be over. <laughs> <laughs> like it's not going to be a disaster. But like I've been mentally checked out of Attitude Era Nostalgia and Gentlemen's three matches for a combined total of about two decades. So let's move on. Uh, let's move on to the big story coming off the back of AW Dynamite this week. Uh, Arn Anderson's there in the ring with Tony Schiavone uh, saying how great it is to be there in Miami. And then another blackout hits, just like in uh, the match earlier on with Cody and QT Marshall. When the lights come back on, there is Tommy End, Alistair Black, or as he's now known, Malachi Black. Uh, he hits whatever they're calling the Black Mass in AEW. His spinning heel kick on Arn lays him out. Cody uh, rushes down, gets to gets in the rings, you know, back and forth. We can't hear what they're saying. Uh, and and Black, Tommy End, whatever you want to call him, we'll get to your, to your explanation of all this in a second, Sige. Um he seems to back off. He seems to allow Cody to check on his mentor. But then, of course, he nails Cody with the black mass again, lays him out. And, uh, yeah, he's got the uh, – thanks to every single wrestling fan on Twitter who went, oh, look, I stuffed. Yeah, I got it. Yeah, thanks. Um, but, uh, yeah, Cody and on laid out by uh, by the now, uh, as Excalibur explained, Malachi Black. Sid, I'll come to you after Hamlet so you can talk more about the, the name thing. But uh, – a stunning surprise debut here, Hamlet, made even funnier by the news that's come out today. If you're thinking, wait a second, one, two, three, four, five. when did Alistair Black get released by WWE? Or oh, maybe he's the one they negotiated that early release with. No, <laughs> WWE just crapper admin, basically. They apparently, uh, this according to, I think, Mike Johnson, a PWE insider, apologies if I got that wrong, uh, apparently forgot to change his no-compete clause from 30 days to 90 days when he moved to the main roster in 2019. So, yeah, it's not through the kindness of John Laurinaitis. It's WWE being dumbasses, but I'm very happy about it, Hamlet. I love that story for two reasons. One, because as you say, like a clerical error of this nature is really funny in an industry like wrestling. But two, those no-compete clauses should be reversed because people are more over when they're on NXT. <laughs> like, you only need 30 days. Like, I know I know which, like, bigger release clause, like, Tucker would have probably wanted. Like, oh, it's the heavy machinery guy versus this complete nobody from Raw. Um, this was good. This was good. Um, AW get Davies wrong all the time. And this, like, this was strong. He is the biggest talking point coming out of this show. He's in a feud with Cody immediately, which is like a little bit of a Cody thing. It's like, uh, you know, got to get my programs. He's had about like 50 angles this year and it's diminished his heat. Like if you can focus him on one, that's really strong and it's going to be a big pay-per-view match, which this presumably is. Like it'll feel massive on the night. The match will be of a, of a high standard. Um, yeah, it was good. Uh, not a massive Tommy End Malachi Black guy, but... Um, objectively, and based on the reaction this crowd got, this was the exact level he should have come in at. You know, you didn't feel like he was punching above his weight 
entering in with a pro into a program with Cody or attacking Arn Anderson, nor did it feel underwhelming in this latest glut of WWE releases who is going to appear on AEW. It was like measured exactly right based on the reaction from that crowd. And how nice was it to be able to say that versus, well, judging off Twitter and Reddit today, like mm. crowd went like apeshit for it. And so nice to be able to judge it in the proper sense it's intended. So like I, I would consider all of this an objective success. I'm going to hold back a little bit from getting overexcited until the match itself, because Black's got a bit of a potted history with this sort of stuff. This was a total and utter home run of something that I've got grave anxieties about because I'm just not <laughs> a fan of the old Alistair Black character, whatever the hell it was. Nor am I am I a fan of supernatural overt stuff in wrestling. Not that I think AEW will do it. Um, in fact, I got the first really reassuring sort of inkling from this show that they are going to do very artful things production-wise to convey the idea that Malachi Black is a disturbance, is otherworldly in a way where he's not teleporting about the place, just set-dressing to flesh out, illustrate character. Um, So I don't think he's going to be killing people like he did in his video, which leads me to my next point, which again is probably a little bit more nuanced than the latest tedious Twitter discourse. Um, so the crack is Excalibur says that's Tommy End but it isn't Tommy End that's not the man I once wrestled in Dusseldorf, Germany that is Malachi Black right, here's the thing Malachi Black, Alistair Black, Tommy End, whatever released a god-awful video yesterday (laughs) on his Instagram that was hack stuff cringe hack stuff for my tastes I understand that there is an element of thought. Yeah, the the mental institution is a symbol of WWE. Did you get that damn thought when you watched the video? I, I, never, I didn't know what he was talking about. I thought, is he really locked? Is that, is that what they're getting at? Is that the, is that the eye stuff? And then that eye stuff, like, I get it. He's really interested in preserving. He wants to treat... That's the thing. It's a bit of a dissonance here. He wants to treat his fans with intelligence and he believes how he believes his fans to be is more intelligent than any of the dialogue or scripting or ideas behind what he was doing. But in effect, regardless of whether you like the video, it was basically a introduction to this character in which it was revealed that he hasn't been in WWE or he has been in WWE it's an asylum of sorts. Um, he is not Tommy End. He's been so tortured by this experience, presumably, that he has become Malachi Black. So when Excalibur says, that's not Tommy End or the Tommy End I knew, that's Malachi Black. People are saying, how does he know that? Oh, because he released a video. The issue is that in the video, he kills someone. <laughs> so it's like, you don't want to see any of that in AEW. All of that was a bit messy, but... Don't get on Excalibur's back. Like, there's a, an explanation. And, you know, it's bad faith actors, and I'm trying to get away from getting annoyed by this, but this is so... Because they're operating in bad faith. They get it, they just don't want to get it. Or they're so thick that... They're too thick to ever get it. So either way, you're not going to win. Like, everyone's a loser who gets involved in this. And I've realised that I've been a bit of a loser this year. I'm trying to move away from it. But the idea is, 
the thing that I've just freaking said. Okay. Um, but beyond all of that tedious discourse, I thought this is a home run in terms of the reaction, in terms of how much of an actual presence that um, Malachi Black conveyed. I'm not into this kind of thing at all. And yet I thought maybe it's the AW curve because mm. this wasn't like blindingly original beyond the, the foreshadowing flicker in the first match, which I thought was a beautiful detail. Um, but it was just executed really well. The crowd were pumped for him. And my broad take, because there's going to be another strand of discourse where we talk about XWWE guys running the show. My broad take is if you are enormously talented, which Alistair Black is, in ring, he's incredible. If you have this talent and the company that you used to work in didn't do anything with it and you still have the best years ahead of you, why not? Why, why shouldn't AEW? It's, it's a stupid idea of them to not try and sign this guy who hasn't been really utilised well, who hasn't exhausted fans on his career, who he has with his part of me. But get him in. Get him in. He's got a following. People are like nuts for this stuff. Uh, I thought it was class. Uh, I couldn't believe how class I thought this was, considering I really am not into it. This is not a dig for the sake of a dig. I really mean, like, as genuine analysis, I, I didn't really love Cody's self of the black mass. You, he had to make himself look a bit of a tit to take it. You had to believe that the guy who just knocked out his mentor had had a change of heart and wasn't going to do it to him. Like, and after the fact as well, you, you want a bit of, like, flat on your back, like, knocked out, like like MJF saw the Judas effect. I'll, I'll give him credit. As Tony Schiavone says, he's complete scum, but he's good at this. Um, yeah, like, Cody was kind of, obviously, the position of it was weird, and then the selling of it after the fact was a bit sort of Hulk Hogan-y, almost, like, trying to shake it off kind of thing, and it's like, this is supposed to be this guy's kill shot. Um, you know, he might have something else in the locker, I suppose. So, like, that, a, a minor criticism of, the, of how that played out, but, like, I was more dazzled by the idea of Christ, they're bringing him in for Cody. This is the big Cody match. Certainly something I want to see. And spot on as well, subject like that. The whole thing about these guys that are being released is like so many of them have this organic uprising of a following after the fact. And it's like to WWE's discredit that they can't see that at the time when they're on the books. So yeah, like it's it's a, it's always been a stupid take, but absolutely take somebody on that brings with them this army of people, which, you know, based on Twitch streams, I guess, like Tommy End objectively did and try it out. It's also not, a, nothing's like in permanent marker. I don't think Malachi Black's going to fail, but just like Miro, if things aren't going that well after a year or two years or whatever the duration of a contract is, pro wrestling, they can move on. Mm. They can write it off as an attempt to try and make the best of something and it didn't work. I, I think it's, it's beyond the pale at this point uh, to be critical of a wrestling company for signing a wrestler when these are the, this is the, like the wrestler market. This is the free market economics of pro wrestling. And before we move on, could I say that mental health unit is what I meant to say? Yes. Anything else? Uh, and considering the, the, the way that the knives have been out for all the, the debuts, I thought it was a, a thrilling arrival in AEW. So very excited to see what happens next with this. Uh, sort of surreal thing next in terms of the fact that it was a recap from something we hadn't seen. It was been taped earlier, basically. So peace that is. Ricky Starks uh, was in the ring. He was cutting a promo on, on Brian Cage, who he's going to face for the FDW Championship. Uh, he's got security, though, because of his 
oh, he's got a bit of a hurty neck. And uh, he's well, he doesn't want to risk anything before that match. You know, Taz has decided that Team Taz just need to have a bit of a fight and sort it out that way. But now Ricky Starks, he believes, has gone a bit too far. He starts bollocking him, uh, but Starks responds and uh, announces that the W in FTW now stands for wife. Brian Cage, not happy about this, comes out, batters the security in stocks, obviously gets out of it. I assume, Sige, it's a very, very busy show, this. The reason why they did this sort of in a weird recap way was to just keep it nice and tight. Nice and tight, because uh, you'd have to do entrances and the like um, to do this segment on Dynamite. It's one of those things, he's saying the exact same thing that Adam Cole's been saying. And maybe I've been guilty. You know what, I think I've probably been fair in the past by saying, you know, these shows overlap. Um, but it's Ricky Starks, I can completely believe that he would want to do that because he's a piece and he's a knob in storyline. This was only okay for me, though. Yeah, I'd, I liked the idea more than the execution. The idea being that um, Ricky Starks also is slightly on the outs with Taz, as well as Brian Cage, and that there's just mad dissension within Team Taz when that's not the case. Like, they're going to turn on Brian Cage. Like... Ricky Stark's goddamn snake, and they're going to take that belt back, and Brian Cage is going to be extricated from the group entirely. And I took this, uh, uh, if I've took it in the spirit as intended, to make it seem like it's just Team Taz chaos, and it makes Brian Cage less of an idiot when they all turn on him. I, I feel like that was why it was set up to exist, but I thought the execution of it was pretty weak. I don't know if that is something to do with the pre-recorded nature of it. It just felt a bit like, felt a bit insignificant. Like, out yeah. of nowhere, the Team Taz internal conflict felt more like a dark program on Dynamite rather than a, a pressing Dynamite concern. Maybe that was just because of how the, the segment was framed. Mm. Uh, it was the Blade and the Bunny versus Orange Cassidy and Chris Statlander next. Uh, huge uh, reaction yet again for Orange Cassidy. Lots of freshly squeezed chants. Uh, and he starts the match off. Actually, the match didn't start yet, but he does his his kicks on the Bunny before the match officially has the bell rung. Uh, the Blade then obviously comes in uh counters the tornado ddt uh incredible strength shown to uh to hit orange Cassidy with a power slam but then orange fat counters that with a stunner um in come the uh, the bunny and chris statlander bunny hits a knee lift statlander fights back with a power slam and then hits a wonderful delayed vertical suplex holding up there for ages uh statlander eventually hits a falcon arrow for a two count climbs the top rope but blade distracts statlander by attacking orange Cassidy. that allows bunny to hit a german suplex later on statlander hits the uh area 54 451 it's been a, i'm sorry i didn't get a lot. 450 and area 51 uh, it's, it's good. I'm taking the piss. It's actually kind of, it's for wrestling pun name standards. It's actually class. Yeah, exactly. It's just, it's just numbers and lack of sleep and football coming home and all that. Um, anyway, uh, so she hits that on uh, Blade. Bunny pulls Orange out of the ring because he is the one who obviously has to pin Blade if he's legal. Uh, Blade earlier on, I should say, when the ref was checking her over, checking him over, had some brass nuts taken away from him, but he had a second pair. Uh, he rocks Orange, uh, nails him with a right hand as Orange Orange Cassidy goes for the Orange Punch, but uh, he doesn't realise that Statlander has tagged herself in. So when he goes to put his foot on Orange Cassidy's chest and pin him, uh, it's actually Statlander who is legal and therefore obviously the bunny. Statlander comes in, pushes Bunny into Blade. Blade tumbles out of the ring and uh, Statlander hits the Big Bang Theory for the victory, Michael Hamplet. I thought this was really good. I thought this was really, really good. This was everything the um, 
Bailey and Seth Rollins versus Bianca Belair and Cesaro match wasn't, which was we fantasy booked a couple of spots that would get around the intergender violence thing that made total sense, and they didn't do them. They didn't go anywhere near them. This was exactly that. The orange kicks and the uh, 450 were perfect ways to do the man-on-woman violence, and it'd be fun, and it'd be believable, and it'd be logical in the sense of the characters. And as we, as like I think I was optimistic but nervous about on the preview yesterday, this match existed to get Chris Statlander over, and it completely achieved that. This was like a total. Ele- this was far more interesting than the feud that got us here. This was Chris Statlander's great, and Britt Baker needs to be worried about it. This was in-universe women's division booking dressed up as a mixed tag match to pay off a pretty lame, like suboptimal television feud. Like I thought this was a for what for what it could have been. This was a total triumph. Yeah, I love this. Very witty, fun match. I was expecting a bit of fun, but it was witty and quite intelligently structured. My only issue with it is that the commentary team were like not on the same wavelength of the match. Um, Excalibur is carrying Jim Ross at this point. Like he is carrying him. He is explaining things to Jim Ross. Like Jim Ross is not watching this goddamn thing. Um, so there's a few distracting moments. But beyond that, I thought this was tremendously fun, penultimate quarter hour fluff. Uh, something I very much enjoyed uh, came next. Uh, it was noticed earlier on that we had uh, Jorge Masvidal and Amanda Nunes, two major, big, big stars to have in attendance. I have to say, Amanda Nunes, one of the best female fighters on the planet, aside from maybe Chris Cyborg. Uh, that's uh, when they've had their match and Nunes won, but it's, I want to see a rematch. I don't know what I'm talking about that for. But anyway, uh, great to have her there. And Jorge Masvidal, who's a fantastic UFC fighter. He's the one who hit that running knee and beat Ben Askren in like three seconds, if you're trying to wonder who that is. He also is the owner of the BMF belt, who he beat Nate Diaz for. That stands for baddest mother. Yeah, you get the idea. Anyway, Dan Lambert is there. He is the founder of American Top Team, who train MMA fighters. And uh, yeah, he's being chatted to by Tony Schiavone, but says, well, I didn't sign up for this. I said, you know, we'd come and watch, but I didn't sign up for an interview. So he grabs the mic and steps in the ring and cuts a promo, slagging off AW, basically. AW sucks, old school wrestling's good, et cetera, et cetera. Um, He said, look, I chatted to Tony Khan and he sort of surreptitiously puts over AW by saying, Tony Khan said that, uh, you know, we've got all this varying styles. We've got all these incredible uh, levels of experience, these amazing wrestlers, legends, up and coming stars. Uh, lists all of them. Well, basically, I thought I'd give it, give the show the benefit of the doubt. Come on, watch. No, it absolutely sucks and uh, piss off you lot, effectively. But out comes Jake Roberts and Lance Archer, who murder <laughs> the uh, the founder of American Top Team, hits the blackout on him, and Jorge Masvidal and Amanda Nunes do nothing apart from well, take photos backstage with the talent. So yeah, nice, nice bit of respect for their uh, for their fellow MMA person there. But uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, we all know what he was there, all the, who he was channeling, let's say, Sidge, with all this. Yeah, this is really good um, I, on so many different levels. The promo itself was absolutely incendiary, as, as incendiary as it was intelligent, fantastic stuff. We knew what he was doing, and he was doing both things at the same time incredibly well. More of him, please, on this television program. That was great. The fact that they had the... MMA people on the outside will call it a little bit of tiny modicum of a mainstream pub. Mm-hmm. Very good. Very, very good. The best flex of the promo is that this guy was, without saying it, because he had better patter, but he was basically saying, I'm sick of these uh, spot monkeys and twinkle toes McFingerbang. And people think this guy's funny. Are you joking? It's absolutely dire patter. 
So you do that better. And in the biggest flex of all, they've got an absolute giant. So it's not all petite wrestling. <laughs> it's not just loads of spot, spot monkeys. There aren't actually any spot monkeys. There's probably one or two who just get on dynamite one or two times around dark. And then the big bastard comes out completely undermining everything in the spiel and gives them the finish. The issue is that it just didn't get the reception because they've kind of knackered Lance Archer. And I've said it a million times, it's kind of understandable why you've knackered a Lance Archer because of the role that he plays. But like, it was a nice thing to try and reheat Archer. It really was. All of it was perfect except for the tiny little bit of non-reception at the end. I was a bit sad when Lance Archer came out because it was the tell that this is just a one and done because Dan Lambert's in town. Um, Impact Wrestling's last true megastar, Dan Lambert, and his American Top Team promos were just a highlight of pro wrestling when they were happening. Um, he's so good at this. He's mm. so, so good at this. He is a he's a money promo when they're harder to come by than you would think in wrestling. Like, as in, what I mean by that is, is that I think he could sell pay-per-views by like talking you into a match or talking people into buying tickets for things. Um, he talked me into him getting an AW career. This had like Eddie Kingston energy of sign this man. And I know Dan Lambert doesn't need it. And in a way that was what was so great about his impact run is that like he can just special guest this as much as he like and be better than half the guys on the roster. Um, but when Archer attacked him, I had a bit of a, oh, that was fun. I thought it, like I thought it was, this was going to exist longer form popping in a frigging VHS tape and listening to the old words of Gordon Soley calling the real action. Like, just love him. Love Dan Lambert. Um, if anything, I thought your boys from the old mixed martial arts need a bit of pro wrestling training, Wilborn, because it was all a bit jackass when it went to them and they were giggling along. Yeah. <laughs> like, you should be express a little bit of... Cons- I know, like, he's an arsehole and maybe they're just like, oh, it's nice when he finally gets what's coming. <laughs> but I don't think that was the intent. I think they just forgot that they were on the clock and I could have done with a bit, a bit, a bit of work there. Um, this is AEW. They spot when things get over in a way that maybe even more so than they expected. I hope that this is not a one and done and they realise that Dan Lambert is a valuable commodity because I'd bring him in. Like, I, I think there's more to do with him and you could do you could do American Top Team as a storyline group again. Um, maybe there's too many stables in this company, but I'd welcome another one by Dan Lambert. Yeah, just a really nice surprise, all this. And then we got to the main event. It was the tag team titles on the line in a street fight. Young Bucks versus Eddie Kingston and Penta El Zero Miedo. Uh, lovely touch from Eddie Kingston coming out in a Terry Funk shirt. And uh, yeah, lovely touch by having Michael Nagazel get super kicked very early on by the Young Bucks accidentally as well. A brutal match, this. Um, yeah, everything you'd expect from a tables match. Penta hits that diving drop kick to Matt Jackson's arse, but with a chair involved this time. Uh, they get out the tables. Nick Jackson stops Eddie Kingston from superplexing his brother onto a table. He power bombs Kingston onto it instead. And then Penta hit a running destroyer on Matt Jackson through a table. Just bloody bonkers. Um, as we go to the break, <laughs> I love this. Just as we go into the break, Nick Jackson... Uh, football kicks a trash can into Penta's face. See you after the break. Uh, anyway, we come back. Uh, there's a senton bomb uh, through a trash can onto Kingston from Nick Jackson for a for a two count. Uh, Penta fights back for them, though. He hits a thrust kick. He hits a sling blade on both of them. He hits a, a lung blower and a senton combo on, on both of them. Uh, the Young Bucks fight back, though. They set up for more bang for your buck, but uh, they break it up. 
Kingston and Penta. Thrust kick, half and half suplex, DDT. Kingston gets uh, Matt Jackson in a sleeper. It looks like he's going to tap. He's going to tap. He does tap. But before the referee can see that, he gets hit with a 450 splash. Sweet Jesus uh, from Nick Jackson. Uh, so no one can see the uh, visual submission, of course. That allows... Yeah, here we are. The Good Brothers to come out and attack Penta. Uh, oh, sorry, attack Kingston. And for Penta to take them both out with a huge dive. He goes uh, for Fear Factor later on on Matt Jackson. But Matt Jackson flips out of it, spears Kingston, goes to, to get Penta, gets uh, Cutler to spray him. He hesitates. He remembers what happened the previous week. And in the midst of all this, out comes the elite hunter, Frankie Kazarian, who power bombs Cutler through a table. Penta and Kingston hit that. Fear Factor spinning back fist. They've got the pin, but there's no referee because remember EH on that 450 earlier on. Official runs out. One, two, Nick Jackson pulls him out of the ring. Kazarian attacks the books, but then the Good Brothers come back and attack him, hit him with a magic killer. Kingston, surprise, surprise, brings out some thumbtacks. Actually, I think they were brought back, brought down by the uh, the Good Brothers, but regardless, he grabs the thumbtacks. Uh, Penta twats Matt Jackson with a with a trash can as this is all going on. Penta and Nick uh, fight on the top rope. Nick hits an avalanche hurricane runner on Penta, onto the tax. Everyone is just suffering right now because the tax are bloody everywhere. Kingston breaks up the cover, though. He eats stereo super kicks, and then they uh, throw tax, the books this is, into Penta's face and put the remaining tax in Eddie Kingston's mouth. He then gets a super kick. One, two, three. The Young Bucks retain. And uh, I've said this a lot recently, Sidge, but this was wince-inducing. This was Winston Juicing. It took a while to get there for me. The last three, four, five minutes were just spectacular, brutal, like a proper PWG books, like guerrilla warfare, like absolutely class. The Canadian destroyer through the table was amazing. My problem with it is that I think one of the reasons why it took a while to get going is because the fans were so goddamn close to the ring. I don't know if it was just the venue. Presumably it was, but they kind of had this issue with the early AEW shows where the gap between the uh, barricade and the ring skirt and the ring apron was so narrow that I think, remember Kenny Omega and Pac just killing the legs with those dives? It was a similar setup. So when they were retrieving the plunder and setting up the plunder, it really felt like... What's the word I'm looking for? Just contrived. And it felt like they were breaking the immersion because they had to do the admin of setting up the spots for later because the area was so tight. You could see them kind of struggling through it. And it just, it felt like I was getting taken away from the match. I was eventually brought completely into it. Um, just the vi- level of violence is fantastic. Nick Jackson remains. I thought Kenny Omega was the funniest person in wrestling an hour before. And then Nick Jackson does that. <laughs> the Rich Knox. Absolutely class. Um, Rick Knox. Um just at the very end, did I get 2021 Young Bucks form? But it did take a bit of a while to get there um, for the reasons I've outlined. Yeah, they were like, they were, it was felt a bit, bit obvious, a bit petrally. They were chasing that feeling of chaos from the very beginning, but like at least they caught it. I think that's what I would say by the end, at least they caught it. Like I thought that like pretty much from the moment I think like Kaz got smashed with a magic killer. 
which by the way, like a brilliant way to deal with the elite hunter. I think it's okay every now and then when he's continually making these run-ins and playing spoiler for them to be like, we need to think about Kaz, lads. <laughs> Kaz is going to be here. I think it's okay to like give your heels a certain sense of intelligence to preempt it and then do something as damaging as that to actually factor him out of things a little bit. You have that once in a while because it just instills a little bit more fire in Kaz's belly for the next time when he's got to come out and be that guy. So I think from that point on, that was when I got this feeling. Like maybe it was because that was the tell that we were finally heading towards the finish. And mm. it was like, right now things have to escalate. Like now we have to do this, we have to do this. And you end with, you know, drawing pins in the mouth. Oh. Um, it was a really fun, the crowds are back main event more than it was like a good Young Bucks match. Both of those things are fine. Um, but I guess the Young Bucks have elevated expectations of what you want from them on a weekly basis. And it can't always be that way. I had a, had a really good time, but nobody's... Like, I had a really good time in 1998 and nobody's slapping, like, four and a half stars on those Raw main events. So I, th- I think sometimes you, you kind of going to have to, like, settle for one rather than the other. That's, that's not me trying to bargain for what I didn't like about this match. I just, yeah, the, like, the standards are incredibly high with the Young Bucks and this didn't quite hit that until... Maybe until it was too late, until, like, a really exhilarating, like like minute and a half, two minutes. Um, and a nice way for this episode to end, because I think in terms of in-ring, it ended on a bit of a high, and I don't think it really reached that much throughout the night. Yeah, I have to echo that. Well, let us know your thoughts on an eventful episode of AEW Dynamite. On Twitter, <laughs> at What Culture. That was the last chance to do it, so I thought I'd do it again. Uh, <laughs> at What Culture WWE. Watch that you can follow all three of us. You can follow Michael Hamlet at... Michael Hamlet. Or Michael Sidgwick at... M. Sidgwick. Follow me at Adam Wilborn. Follow us all at What Culture WWE. Uh, and make sure you subscribe to What Culture Wrestling wherever you get your podcasts from for daily wrestling podcasts coming up in the next few days. An interview that's going to absolutely rule the former Everise. I'll be chatting to them later on today. And that interview will be out in the next few days. Well, this has been the AEW Dynamite Review. My thanks to the Dadly Boys. Thank you for joining us. And we will see you soon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.